All right, welcome to another episode of the Science of Hitting podcast. Uh, my guest today is returning again for, I think this is the fourth time now, Francisco Oliveira. Francisco, how you doing? Hey, how's it going, man? Thanks for having me on again. Of course. And uh, for anybody who's listened in the past, we're here to talk Disney again. We're going to talk the company's uh, results for the fourth quarter of fiscal 2020. And I guess we'll start with uh, the big headline, which is the company's namesake, direct-to-consumer offering, Disney+. Plus. Uh, it was launched a year ago this month and now has roughly 74 million global paid subs. Um, to put that number in context, when management had their investor day, when they laid out their DTC, you know, strategic plans and their long-term objectives, they said the midpoint of their target was, or they were looking for 60 to 90 million subs after year five. So we're already at the midpoint after a year. And there's also, you know, some more big launches coming, notably a, a couple markets in Latin America uh, this week, I think, that have a total population of about 400 million people. So, you know, another tailwind coming there. Um, at a high level, what's your grade on the Disney's G2C launches after a year? And what do you think we'll see in the coming year in terms of sub- subscriber growth, uh, content additions, pricing, et cetera? No, yes, yeah, I, I thought, the. I mean, it's undeniable the the launch of Disney Plus in particular has been kind of extraordinary. I think I remember us talking the week before they launched, thinking that maybe they could get to ten million by the end of of the year for the you know over the first month and a half, and you know they signed up ten million on the first day basically. So I think I think it's been incredibly impressive, and yes, I, it's fair to say that they've gotten a a tailwind because of COVID because everyone's basically in their houses and, and wanting to be entertained and wanting to families wanting to entertain kids. So that has accelerated the streaming market overall, but at the same time, or the content production has been shut down. So they haven't been able to launch a whole a whole lot of original content i mean they have been able to release a good amount of original content but nothing to the degree that they wanted to especially like the big home run type of series so i think that goes to show that yes we have this tailwind of covid but their brand and the library that they have is extraordinary uh, extraordinarily valuable so I think that's what's been most impressive and that, and that they've executed. I think, you know, the first week when it launched in the U.S., there was you know, news all over the place on, on the service crashing and, and being difficult, but that, that went away pretty quickly. But their execution in terms of the tech has been, has been pretty good. So I think in terms of the launch itself, I think that you just got to give it an A+. plus. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean... Just furthering those points, the tech has has been good from a from an anecdotal my experience. Um, as you noted, they had that early blip, but uh, I haven't heard anything since. So that's good. They've done a good job with distribution. You know, they had the Verizon deal. They've they've done a good job getting the app on on different major video platforms, at least in the United States. I think the bundling strategy has been intelligent. They had the early deal with the D twenty three members, so. Everything they've done in that regard, I've been, I've been impressed by, and it, you know, it that all helps with getting a lot of subscribers. But Disney's brand being as good as it as it is, going out and getting some of their old content rights back sooner than they expected, all that stuff's played into it. Um, what what do you think about you know, as we look to the year ahead? Obviously, content production is coming back. That they have some pretty, some pretty aggressive plans to. Know, continue to build out the service. What do you think about the content? And also, you know, in a market like the United States, I, I know it's way too early to say they're saturated, but do you think we're at a point where a year or two from now they can start thinking about pricing or some of those other le- levers that we both know are so important to the economics of a, a D2C business? Yep. Yeah. So, first on pricing, I'll take the, the second one first. I think it's they basically said that they're not going to increase prices until the volume of, of original content is, is a lot higher. So I would think that at least two years at the earliest, and maybe they might be aggressive in terms of just gaining kind of a huge base before they, they kind of pull that trigger. Um, 
in terms of the content that's coming up, I think they're they're actually going to release a, a a bunch of content over the next call it eighteen months or so. They have they're currently releasing the the second season of The Mandalorian. Um, they have a Pixar movie that was supposed to go to theaters, uh, Soul, that's coming up in December. In January, you got the first Marvel Studios television show with the WandaVision, which the WandaVision trailer had more views than basically the vast majority of, of, of big-budgeted blockbuster movies. So we're talking mm-hmm. about hundreds of millions of people uh, watched the trailer, were exposed to the trailer. Then after that, um, in terms of the big franchises, you're going to see more Marvel shows next year. The Winter Soldier and, and Loki, more Star Wars shows, probably Mandalorian Season 3 towards the end of uh, next year, and probably one other uh, Star Wars series. You're going to get more Disney-branded uh, live-action shows, such as um, one of the Mighty Ducks uh, kind of hockey movies, but now they're they're going to do a series on it. They're going to do, they're going to leverage the Fox IP and have a kind of Home Alone uh, branded series. They're going to have more original movies um, and documentaries, for example. They're going to have a documentary on how they basically finished production of Soul, the Pixar animated movie, during COVID. So showing how basically they have to work remotely, that, that could be pretty interesting, especially for the super fans that Pixar does have. So I think in terms of their slate, um, especially the non-family kind of big-budgeted Marvel and, and Star Wars programming, it, it, it's basically it's going to be it's going to be a lot of content that they're going to have over the next eighteen months. And if you think that theaters could see the light at the end of the tunnel towards the second half of next year, you're probably going to see an acceleration of those uh, big budgeted movies being added to Disney Plus as well. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that they're going to be able to add more subscribers given the volume of, of original content that, that's coming in the pipeline. And especially, like you mentioned earlier, further international expansion, primarily LATAM this week. But one thing that they said in the call that kind of stood out to me, they say their their DTC strategies are evolutionary and that they're also in a world of managing churn and that they want to add a lot of content to lower that churn and increase the growth. So they've basically been able to add, like you said, 74 million, uh, around 74 million subscribers pre a couple of huge, uh, launches in, in several countries but once they you know as i mentioned all that content over the next 18 months once that all comes up online I, they're going to be able to add a lot more subscribers or at a minimum reduce churn because you have um i think we both have read some data on basically people who subscribe to disney plus to watch the mandalorian and then unsubscribe and then they come back for season two we're talking about millions of subscribers that do that, but if you keep the the pace of content pretty high um, with that type of audience, right, that that younger uh, male or female that aren't necessarily married with kids um, that want to watch, that wants, you know, wants to have Disney Plus so that kids watch uh, animated movies on repeat, um, that segment of the market is going to have a lot of content coming onto Disney Plus over the next 18 months. So I think that's going to be I'm pretty comfortable and, and pretty, uh, you know, like you said in your article that you released today, it, it's basically a slam dunk uh, assumption that they're going to have over 100 million subscribers over the next couple months. Yeah, and I think that's a good it's a good marker. You know, I tried to lay out some of the math for, for what this can look like long term. And uh, unsurprisingly, the two big variables are how many subs you can get and what the ARPU is on those subs. And, you know, at the time I was doing that series... I thought 110 was it's, it's an arbitrary number, but it seemed like a reasonable goal a few years out. Now it looks like, you know, depending what exactly Disney Plus means as they move into other markets and its bundle with stuff like Hotstar. But anyways, it seems like 
110 is probably way too low of a number as we look years into the future, which is obviously great for the long-term economics for them and D to C. Um, as part of as part of the movie stuff, let's talk about Pivod for a second because you know they released Mulan with this strategy because it, it was a it was a bigger movie for them. Um, commentary in the call was really limited. It was a lot of talk about how there was some negative press around the movie, um, which to me sounds like a, maybe a half truth, but we'll we'll take them at their word. Um, and CEO Bob Chapik essentially said that they're not they're not done with Pivod. And you know you've told me in the past you know a lot more about this than I do. There's essentially in the Marvel universe, as an example, certain movies kind of need to be released in order for storylines and other content, whether it's movies or, or shows to, to make sense. There's a certain timeline to it. So if, if we're thinking about second and a half of 21, as you kind of said a second ago for theaters to reopen, what do you think they should do with some of these key Marvel franchises? It is going to kind of have to hold a few of them back, and will that impact other content from being released on Disney Plus? Yeah, I think first on the, the Pivot comment and Mulan, I think it was probably an interesting experiment, and I thought it was good for them to do it. What's interesting that in the previous college, Hapix said that this Mulan premium add-on was was a one-off, but now he's saying that basically this is this something that they're, that they're going to do again and use again. So I thought that that was interesting. It, it seems like Mulan was an okay, I wouldn't say a slam dunk success. It was probably not a disaster. It was, it was probably fine. Um, and they learned from it. And so I think his commentary, like you said, might be like negative reviews or commentary of, of some of the uh, production uh, sets that they use in China that probably didn't help but I don't think you know even without that probably wouldn't have done like a major success I think Peabot is something that listen I don't know when we're going to get back to theaters in mass numbers and even we could debate vaccine when it's distributed it's hard to imagine that you're going to have packed theaters in the summer Uh, maybe packed theaters in all of 2021 I hope just for for the sake of everybody that we can do that safely uh, sometime next year. But it's, it's not an easy, it's not an assumption I would be, feel comfortable making. So I think Peabot's interesting, particularly for the Marvel movies, like you said, because the Marvel movies, it, it's, it's tougher to delay them as you release basically the Disney Plus Marvel shows that connect with the movies. Because if you de- delay one Marvel movie, you have to delay everything, right? So if you don't release Black Widow uh, next year, it delays the movie that comes after Black Widow, the movie that comes after that one, because it's whole, it's, it's an entire interconnected uh, sequel of you know, cinematic universe. So the example I would give is that if they had the live-action Lion King that they released last year, if that movie were actually going to be released in 2020 and it was, if it was delayed because of COVID, we have no problem delaying that until 2021 or even 2022 or 2023 because that movie, the power of that basically story and the love that people have with those characters and the quality of the, the film itself is going to make, you know, over a billion dollars in the box office regardless. But Marvel, you delay one, you delay all of them, right? So if you keep delaying, you're just not going to have any Marvel content. And, and basically in 2020, there was no Marvel Cinematic Universe content. We continue to delay uh, Black Widow. can conceivably be the whole year. I don't think that's going to happen. But it's the, the premium video on demand window with Marvel movies is a powerful tool because there's going to be huge pent-up demand for these movies, and that it and it will avoid a scenario where you just have to keep delaying all the fr- all the movies in the franchise and the TV shows because they're going to connect with each other. the The WandaVision TV show that's going to be released in January is going to connect with the next Doctor Strange movie that comes. That movie's going to come out two movies after two or three movies after Black hmm. Widow. 
So, and I believe the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is also going to connect with a couple of the movies coming out. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier Marvel TV show that's going to come out in, in Disney+. Plus. So, I think in, in terms of using the premium video on demand window and, and service for Disney+, Plus with Marvel in particular, is gonna, it could be a slam dunk. They, they could have used that with the sole Pixar movie that's going to come out in December, and they, said they decided not to. And that might be a little bit little telling, right? Um, you already have a, a lot of families on, the, on these services, and maybe just asking, asking them for that kind of money uh, would be a little bit too much. And you could still increase a lot of demand for the Disney Plus just by putting that movie directly. But Marvel fans and super fans are a different segment of the market. Um, so it could be a huge driver for Disney Plus. And they're basically, it, it does seem like they're going to use that strategy again, and they'll probably give us some color on that um, on the Investor Day uh, next month. Yeah, I'm a little bit... I'm a little bit torn here. You know, the last time you and I talked about this, I think we both agreed that that the, the PVOD test was a reasonable thing to do. Um, I don't think it worked particularly well. And I think as it comes to some of these Marvel movies, to the extent that it has impacts on the rest of their, uh, you know, the rest of the franchise, their ability to release some of this other content, I almost view it in some sense as a sunk cost. And if there's a movie or two that goes direct to Disney plus in, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe, um, I kind of think that skipping PVOD would, would be the right decision. I'm not totally opposed to it, but I, I like the, the idea of having a very straightforward value proposition. And then when theaters return, those become 10, 10 pole event franchises again. And obviously, as we discussed last time, the objective there becomes, you know, shortening the window, but still preserving theatrical because I, I think it serves both the financial and a brand role. But I, I'm less convinced that PVOD needs to or should be a continuing part of the strategy going forward. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, if you have a billion dollar box office movie in your hands, it should go to theaters, right? Uh the economics are really tough to make it in PVOD unless you make it like $60 a movie and and you get a good amount of volume. Um, it, it's really tough, and, and especially when you combine the global nature of that. But I think for Marvel movies, it could be a bridge um, from, from today towards getting to a, a theater environment that's normal. Um, so it could serve that strategy well. It also, it, we're, Disney Plus is adding more markets, right? Like you mentioned earlier. And as you keep adding more markets, the premium video on demand offering is exposed to more people. So it helps the economics a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do this when we're, if we're back to normal. You have the next Star Wars movie. You have the next Avengers movie. It should go to theaters, right? And then after you make the vast majority of the box office dollars, it should go immediately to Disney+. Plus. But we're in a, in a difficult period where we don't really know when you can even have the type of numbers in terms of people going to theaters that will, will create the billion-dollar box office movies. Like I remember going to theaters to see... Avengers Endgame, and that was like extremely packed. Um, and then I went like a month and a half later, and it was still packed. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that that happening uh, anytime soon. Sadly, right. So, right. Well, let's talk about another part of the business that probably will not look uh, like it did two years ago anytime soon, and that's the parks business. Um, for the year, for the fiscal year, sales were down by more than a third to $17 billion. And the segment reported a small operating loss compared to nearly $7 billion in operating income, segment operating income the year before. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's some positives we have to point to as, as we're getting closer to something of a return to normal, most notably in the Florida parks and some international markets. On the other hand, 
you know, California, the parks remain closed and management said on the call that that's not likely to change in the coming months. And obviously some of the news we've seen recently would support that conclusion as the state is, you know, locking back down to a certain extent. Um, at this point, how are you thinking about the parks biz? Do you think it's a, you know, temporary issue that'll be fully resolved in the coming quarters as a vaccine becomes available? Or do you think this could become a longer term issue? I think it's just basically getting to the other side in terms of the virus. Uh, you know, we're not going to see the, the park in California, Disneyland open this year. And huge question marks if, in terms of getting that park open before we even have a vaccine that's fully distributed. It doesn't appear like they, the, the governor in California, um, you know, we, you can debate whether what he's doing is right or correct or whatever, but it doesn't appear like they're, they're going to be allowed to have the parks open until COVID is basically almost extinct. Um, so it's going to be a very difficult period. The parks in, in, in Florida are capacity constrained. They mentioned on the call that capacity before they had to run that 25%, and I think it's uh, around 35% now, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yep. And they're saying that they're seeing good booking numbers, almost like high high seventy percent booking uh, in this quarter, and Thanksgiving weekend is is fully booked at that capacity. the The parks in the park in Paris, um, outside of Paris, is is closed again, and the parks in Asia are, are probably run, running around the same low capacity as Orlando, so. In terms, they've actually managed the business pretty well in terms of reducing costs and, and managing the burn on the parks. And they, they've they reduced CapEx, but it hasn't been like a an extreme CapEx uh, reduction. And, and a big part of the CapEx reduction in this last fiscal year is because they finished a huge... A project, um, two Star Wars lands, one in California, one in Orlando, and that was extremely costly. And they finished that last year, so that the cost of that wasn't really reflected as much in this year. So they, they're still investing in the parks, um, managing costs effectively, but they're still investing in the parks and, and managing the burn. They said that the contribution margin of having the parks that are open open was was actually positive. So. In terms of, in terms of here until the end of COVID, it's just survival for the parks, and there's not much you know one can say. The, the results speaks for themselves when you when you look at them. But the positive thing I would say is, um, I, I truly believe the demand is there once we're out of this, once you know everyone has the vaccine and COVID is behind us, and, and COVID will be behind us at some point. Uh, we're we're gonna look at back, back at this period and be it's. You know, it, this is this is not going to be the way that we're going to live the rest of our lives, right? So this will end, and I think right. once this does end, demand might be even higher. I don't I don't anticipate them having to reduce prices aggressively to attract people. I don't anticipate them having trouble getting you know people to pay for for example the new Star Wars hotel experience that they're opening. Um, in California, they're uh, they're opening an Avengers campus. I don't anticipate demand for that to be to be low. I think it's going to be extraordinarily high, extraordinarily high. Um, Epcot is going under renovations as well, and the the parks in in Paris are having huge expansion. The park in Shanghai is having an, a new entire land um, built off the movie Zootopia. So I think the if anything, kids are going to be dying to go to the parks. I mean, assuming the, the economy uh, has recovered as well, right? Because you need, you know, parents with uh, healthy checkbooks to, to go to Disney. Um, I think the demand is going to be super high. So I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very bullish on the parks once this is over, right? So I think calendar year 2022 and definitely in my eyes, calendar year 2023 could be, you know, home run years for the parks. So I'm not really concerned about that. I think, you know, I have three kids. Um, the oldest is four. And he would die to go to the parks tomorrow, right? Um, and I think that's the, that's the audience 
that's the market that uh, is going to drive the demand. And and over time, right, we're we're stuck at home. Some some very very young kids, maybe one year old when they start COVID, and they're coming out of this maybe two or three or or four. Um, they're going to be dying to go to these parks. So I think they offer a very very unique experience. Uh, for many, it's like a rite of passage, and it's all about getting to the other side. It's all about it's the parks, in my view, to, to put it one way, it's not one of these businesses that crushed by the by COVID, but demand at the other side question mark right. Uh, mm-hmm. The classic example, business travel, crushed obviously by COVID question mark afterwards will there be as much business travel i'm not sure right you have zoom and all these things but demand of disney parks and experiences post covid i think might be even higher and that might sound crazy to say but i do truly i mean i don't i don't think it is i think that the history of the parks business at disney supports that conclusion i mean the long-term story here is Continued investment, which lends itself to some ability to, to increase attendance over time. Um, very strong increases in per capita spend. And I think everything here points to exactly that. As you said, it's, it's an incredibly unique experience. It's a rite of passage of sorts. Um, as I mentioned at the, start of, or at the start of this question, the segment made $6.8 billion in segment operating income in 2019. As I told you the other day, I I would bet that that's over 10 billion when we get to 2030 or so, as as we end this decade, you know, 10 years out from there. I I just think, and you could see it in some of the stuff you mentioned, some of the new rides or some of the experiences like the Star Wars Hotel. They continue to leverage their IP. They continue to invest money into really unique and good experiences, and that will continue to command, um, you know, the prices that that they demand and as someone who i went to the park in florida here a month or two ago once it had reopened and again this is in the southeast united states this is in california but it was as safe as anything else i've done since covid started in terms of social distancing masks etc so they're they're holding up their end of the bargain with um you know citizens and government bodies etc and inevitably the world is going to have to find a way to return to something normal and it won't be black or white. So even in places like California, there will eventually be a path to the other side. How did you feel? You know, it's interesting that you went to the parks. Is there any other insight that you could provide? You know, how did, how was like morale, the people that went or, or the employees, were, were there a lot of people any interesting aspect as like from, from the investor point of view after going to the, to the parks? So this was at the point when it was still early on. So I think they initially started at 25% capacity. I don't think it was ever lower than yeah. that. Maybe it was slightly, slightly lower. Um, I've been to the parks many, many times because I have a young niece. So every year my sister drags me there for my niece's birthday, <laughs> which I enjoyed doing, but the parks are always packed. This, this for me was the best park ex- parks experience I've had at Disney in a long time. Wow. <laughs> I thought it was a great experience because there were not nearly as many people. It was just as hot as it always is because it's Florida. But yeah, I, I had a great time and they had the characters out and most of the rides were open and I don't think they were doing shows, but um, anyways, yeah. And I've been to downtown Disney, those areas. It's all, they're doing a very good job at operating you know, with with health and safety in mind, while also not being so dogmatic that everything's just closed forever. That's not reality. The economy can't just implode. So we'll find a balance and get through that. But yeah, like yourself, I, I completely agree that this will, uh, the timing is unclear, but in my mind, there's no question about what it looks like on the other side. Agreed. Let's talk about a business where maybe that's not as clear, <laughs> which is which is media networks. Um, give me some numbers in the fourth quarter. Um, growth in affiliate fees was driven by about eight points from rates, offset by about a four point headwind from subscriber declines. 
but that was with a two-point benefit from the timing of the ACC network launch last year. So, you know, call it a six-point headwind. So you're at, you know, low single-digit affiliate fee growth if the pace of subscriber declines is, is consistent at current levels. On the other hand, you're looking at sports rights renewals, particularly for marquee programming like the NFL, that are probably going to be at rates that are quite a bit higher than that. So how do we how do you think about what the economics look like for this business in you know the coming years? It, it's tough to say um, in reality because cord cutting is a huge, uh, huge headwind. I do think the the positive out of all of this is that increasingly the value of paying for the pay TV bundle is, is sports and the best brand in sports and and the biggest sports offering is um, the, the biggest sports rights and offering is owned by Disney, um, primarily via, via ESPN. So I do think having the best right package will be able to increase their leverage within the bundle. And you and I have talked about this over time, I think is as you have smaller channels whose viewership is declining at a way faster rate than than sports themselves and and if you have programming that is largely available via streaming platforms i think your leverage is decreased but if you are if you have the best sports package your leverage within that bundle will increase so i think the pay tv bundle in the u.s will basically turn to a live uh live programming live news live sports service and that will be mostly dominated or dominated the most by, by ESPN. I think something that they mentioned in the call that was interesting was that they were asked about how they viewed the sports world and how they viewed coming uh, rights renewals, particularly with the NFL. And they basically said, like, look, live sports um, – Sports programming are the most viewed uh, shows on, on, in, in terms of the, the pay TV universe. I think the stat that Bob Chapek said was that in 2019, I think he said something like the top 93 shows out of the top 100 were were basically sports uh, shows and games, and that they will bid on rights based on shareholder value what's a creative to shareholders basically they specifically said that so whatever rights they go after you kind of have to trust them that they will do so in a way that will be to the benefit of shareholders what i'm encouraged of in terms of sports is that they've started to this kind of ties to the direct-to-consumer discussion but the espn plus service already has over 10 million subscribers. Granted, some of that's bundled with Hulu and, and Disney Plus, but if you had told me a year ago or when, when they did their investor initial direct-to-consumer streaming investor day in, I think it was April 2019, you had told me they have 10 million ESPN subscribers by the ESPN Plus subscribers by the end of uh, September 2020, I would have said no way. So they do have, and, and I think they said the usage of, of ESPN streaming, which does inc- includes ESPN Plus, but also streaming on their app for programming on the regular channels was at an at a all-time high usage in, in September. So I do think they've built the technical capabilities in terms of streaming sports, and having a, a, a service in ESPN Plus that they can lever in terms of the if the pay TV bundle completely implodes, I think they will go after rights in the in a way that's strategic and can help the entire uh, ESPN channel. And I think if, as subscribers decline, right? I think in if a if a pay TV bundle distributor has to choose between e- you know, paying ESPN a little bit more money or holding the Discovery Channel or another smaller channel that has entertainment programming that's available in vast quantities on, on Netflix and other platforms. 
I think they will choose to drop those entertainment platforms and keep uh, and keep ESPN. I think they would drop a history channel in a heartbeat and keep ESPN even at a higher cost. So I think they would drop, you know, you know, a Bravo or any any basically channel that's entertainment that isn't really in high demand as much in terms of the linear viewer viewership when compared to Netflix and Hulu. So that leverage will remain. And we even saw a little bit of stability in terms of the whole, the, the rate of subscriber decline in, in terms of the whole universe of, of pay TV distributors. You, you know, you have Hulu live, the, the Hulu pay TV bundle at over 4 million subscribers. You have YouTube TV at over 3 million. That's 7 million uh, subscribers that are, are growing. Charter has added subscribers this year, barely, but they've added subscribers this, this year. Um, and they're around, I think, 15 million or so uh, subscribers. So there there is some, some you know, DirecTV didn't lose as much, Dish didn't lose as much, I think many predicted that Q3 would subscriber declines would be much, much, much higher, and they weren't. So we could see a steady decline in the pay TV universe and other streaming pay TV platforms growing, and ESPN's leverage within that growing. So it's not a, a super great outlook in terms of increase in subscribers, increase in subscribers, something that, like you're, you're seeing with, with Disney+. Plus, But in terms of the profit, for profitability and stability, more importantly, because I think if you have a stable ESPN, business produces a, a, an incredible amount of free cash flow, right, that could be invested in parks, could be invested mm-hmm. in Disney+, Plus, could be invested in the studio. So even a stable ESPN, I think, is extremely positive for, for Disney overall. Yeah, I think I, I agree with almost all of that, if not all of that. Um, I'd start this discussion for me by saying I've sold almost all of my position in Fox, uh, Legacy Fox, the assets were not, that were not acquired from 21st Century Fox by Disney, which was you know, at this point essentially Fox News, and then there's Fox Broadcast, FS1, etc. Um, the reason I've been selling, probably the primary reason, is I think it became clear that my assumption or my thought that it did not make a ton of sense if NFL rights became significantly more expensive yet again, it, that did not make sense or would be difficult for Fox to deal with uh, in an environment where sub, sub declines were you know low to mid single digits annualized. Um, everything I've seen so far suggests that NFL prices will take another step higher. So for Fox, I think that's a pretty tough issue to deal with. And I don't know exactly what that means for the P&L or for cash flows as you look to the future. What I think makes Disney a little different, and it's a lot of the stuff you pointed to, one, they have ESPN Plus now, which gives them an avenue when they go into negotiations that is not just bidding on rights for linear. It's, it's starting to or further strengthen that D to C business that they're building. Um, and it also helps that, you know, there are millions of Americans who already have the ESPN app on their phone and that's built right into it in terms of the functionality to watch. And they need to work, continue to work on distribution with, you know, the Roku's and the, the X ones of the world, et cetera. Um, the other thing is that a lot of this is viewed kind of in, I guess you would say an absolute, but it should be viewed in a relative perspective. Um, you know, Disney's ability to pay can only be measured relative to everybody else's ability to pay. And NFL gets a lot of the focus, but I do wonder what happens. You know, Fox's total sports budget, as an example, can only go up so much. So if they're going to pay a lot more for the NFL, it needs to, it needs it to come mm-hmm. from somewhere else. And I think Disney might be in the best position, or not might be, is in the be- best position to kind of play that game um, and to, to pick up on some opportunities maybe where others are kind of forced to pull back. So I think that that could be interesting. And again, largely to feed ESPN Plus and the D2C businesses. 
And then as you, you think about things like, um, you know, dealing with personalities, as, as you, have and I, you and I have discussed, some of the, the big names in ESPN, part of the reality may be that the contracts and what they're paid just might not be as lucrative as it used to be. And the next best alternative for them um, is to accept a lower a lower salary or a lower contract because of the fact that there's not really anybody else there bidding. So, I mean, it's a small example, but it speaks to the reality that ESPN might still be the best house in what looks like a not great neighborhood. And they'll have a lot of flexibility in the coming, you know, renewals. And we'll see exactly what that means for what packages they go after, what sports they lean into, like, like they've done with soccer for ESPN plus. I think it's been, they've largely taken over that market outside of EPL, which is still controlled in the United States, which is still controlled by uh, NBCU. And they've largely, not largely, they put about half of that programming on Peacock in the past couple months. So I think it's interesting. You're seeing people's strategies play out. And in my mind, Disney's is still the clearest. And I think for a sports fan, ESPN plus at this point is clearly the best product that'll, that'll be needed or desired by a super fan. So I think they remain pretty well positioned for where the world is going, but admittedly, we'll see how expensive NFL rights get and how much they feel. The yeah, need to, I think to play I think a, a point I want to add on to it that you made, which I think is a great point, is that ESPN does provide value to its partners, to its leagues. I think I think many people have thought, mm-hmm. well, the NBA could just you know, cancel or not renew the ESPN contract when it expires in the next couple of years and go direct themselves. Um, Or a startup league is probably better off going to consumers themselves. And I think that's, that's pretty foolish. And if you ask me, and I, I think in terms, look, look, UFC was the direct to consumer league. Right, they they had their own channel streaming service, and then they had pay per view, mm-hmm. and I think they had some rights with Fox, but it wasn't like a an enormous package. But once all those rights came right. up, they went with ESPN, and basically got a, a a check, right, a high royalty check. You don't have to worry about your own direct to consumer platform investing in the tech, investing in the marketing, acquiring subscribers. Um, you basically got a royalty check and you got more exposure um, of the UFC league to even more people in the, in the United States than probably ever before um, because they combine their ESPN channel, their social media platforms, their app, which is the number one sports app by miles in, in, in all app stores, they they got pay-per-view in-house. So you can only buy the pay-per-view via ESPN. And you have to have ESPN Plus to be able to buy the pay-per-view. And they were able to achieve record numbers in many of the pay-per-view matches. So even with those hurdles, you have to have ESPN Plus. You have to have – then you get to, to the pay-per-view. Um, it's an extra hurdle and have to have the ESPN app and whatever television that you use. It's a it's a uh, added hurdles versus having you know calling your cable company Directv. Hey, let me go to the next uh, UFC fighter or whatever service provider, um, or using the the direct to consumer UFC app that was available before. So th- they've be- been able to increase the exposure of UFC to way more people. They're launching documentaries of the UFC and reality TV shows of UFC. The the ESPN Daily podcast, is, which is one of the top sports podcasts, talks about the UFC before every big match. So they're able to create a ton of value for a league that's smaller in size, right, but still worth a lot, the UFC. And for the NBA, they're going to be able to leverage all those assets in the new renewal. And, and, and for the NBA to go direct to consumer themselves, they would have to cancel that royalty check, essentially, that they get to, from ESPN, which is billions and billions of dollars. Invest in the tech, invest in the marketing, maybe have partners divide revenues with them, acquire subscribers, and, and pray that you're going to have as much exposure as before. Right? So you might kill yourself twice. 
less money at the end of the day and less exposure. Right. So I think it's actually a little bit underappreciated. Yes, ESPN has a lot of headwinds with the with the pay TV bundle, but I think it's a little bit underappreciated in terms of the value it does provide to its partners. And I think that's what you know. That's why they have 10 million subscribers and ESPN Plus, a service with niche sports rights and and the UFC. So. That's the positive part, I, w- I would say. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's spot on. It's, it's usually put in the context of just the financials, the billions of dollars that the leagues are paid, which is obviously incredibly important to them and, and the interest of the teams and the players. But to that point, ESPN comes or Disney comes to the table with significant assets in, in ESPN, ABC, and, and, and even and the parks, Plus. the NBA and Disney so, have like an NBA experience and the parks. In, in Orlando, which, you know, it's not something enormous, but still right. it's a, a very nice, ha- nice thing to have. Right. No, I think that's very true. And I think we'll see, you know, as we, as we see more and more deals and, you know, the, the structure of those deals, I think we'll find that ESPN and Disney can make this a win-win for themselves in the leagues in a way that others Agreed. can't really replicate. Um, for the last question, I was going to ask you about valuation, <laughs> but I decided let's go a different route. Disney has an, Disney has an investor day event for, set on, for December 10th. What's one thing or one topic that, you you really want to hear about or that you think they'll say something about that somebody might or others might not you know think they're going to talk about what's what's something that you're, i think the you're two main for. things i'm looking for and, and might not here's what i think the market's going to look for i think the market's going to look for what are the long-term subscriber targets and when are the peak losses what's more interesting to me is it's basically how are they going to integrate more adult content potentially into Disney Plus and, and, and in order to supercharge it. So basically how they're going to lever Hulu content mm-hmm. more with Disney Plus and what are they really going to do with that star service internationally? Um, is it going to be a separate app, a separate whole marketing and solely for that app? I don't think that's the smartest strategy. I think a more integrated strategy of you pay six ninety nine for Disney Plus, but if you pay eight ninety nine, then you unlock the star content or the Hulu content within Disney Plus. I think that would be much more interesting. But let's see what they said they say in that investor presentation because I think they realize that having they have a, an enormous strength in terms of family, but un, unlocking content that is more adult oriented it doesn't have to be extreme content you know a very very bloody reddit r movie but just having more content that appear appeals to to audiences that are not necessarily family could add a lot of value to disney plus so i think the, the that type of strategy is, is something i'm looking for and the and the other part is espn um what are they going to do? How are they going to continue to to keep the momentum going with with ESPN Plus? And are they looking to maybe eventually morphing ESPN Plus to, to just being the regular ESPN? And how are they thinking about that dynamic in terms of content um, for ESPN Plus and the future of ESPN as a, as a linear channel? I think so. Those are the two main things I'm looking for. But I know the headline market grabbing things are going to be like they're targeting 200 million sub, uh, subscribers for Disney Plus and peak losses are in two years or something like that but that's not necessarily what's more what's the interesting part right. to me how about you yeah I think the thing that's I'm most interested to hear about ESPN and what the strategy is there. I think the problem will be, as is always the case with these media companies, any discussions about the NFL, NBA, major rights, you always get non-answers because, you know, obviously there's negotiations with the leagues and they can't say certain things. And there's also everybody wants to keep their cards close to the vest because they don't want, you know, any of their competitors to have a sense for what they're thinking, et cetera. 
So I don't know how much we'll really get on that, but that's the part that I'm most interested about. And then I'm also, as you discussed, I'm interested to see, you know, the U.S. is the is the cleanest market because they have the most built-out assets in terms of something like Hulu. But I, I want to get a cleaner sense of whether or not they're going to collapse the apps, which is kind of what, you know, Loeb uh, kind of recommended or wants, wants them to do from his letter that he wrote two months ago, whenever that was. Um, or if they continue to have kind of a separate app bundled strategy, you know, how they're kind of going at today. So I'm interested to see how they think about that now that they've had a lot of success early and they appear to be pursuing, you know, a similar uh, integrated strategy in places like India. So I'm very interested for this investor day. But like you said, yeah, the, the headline is going to be they think they can get the X number of subs in the next five years. And, and, peak no, losses are in and one way of, of, of thinking about it. <laughs> I think they're going to use this also as a platform to, to showcase the content that's coming up. And if we think about that in terms of ESPN plus might've even been better to have that meeting after the NFL rights was kind of locked up the new negotiations, kind of what you alluded to. Yeah. So, I mean, because yeah, I think ESPN mm-hmm. is, is maybe the, the ESPN part of this meeting is, something that's going to be extremely interesting and, and maybe has even, I want to say bigger implications, but close to uh, as much an implication in terms of the, the, the Disney plus side. So um, they will. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think that's spot on though. This meeting will be very little of that and it'll be a ton of here's, we got sideswiped by COVID just like everybody else that impacted our short-term plans. Here's how much we're going to come out with in the next 12, 18, 24 months. And they're going to, they're going to, you know, discuss maybe not in specific details what content, but they're going to outline a significant amount of spend, probably pretty yeah, well. In excess I mean, the, of what in the last meeting in April 2019, they had Kevin Feige, head of Marvel studios, Kathleen Kennedy, the head of Lucasfilm, which has a Star Wars uh, content. They had um, the heads of the Pixar and the Pete Doctor and Jennifer Lee of, of Disney Animation. They brought the whole Hollywood red carpet, and I think they might do something similar. Just like you just said, basically they're going to show that they're going to come out guns blazing with so much content in the next eighteen months that it's going to get people excited and more comfortable potentially with the subscriber targets that they're going to lay out, but. It's unfortunate that we're not maybe going to get that type of firepower announcements with ESPN, with ESPN and ESPN Plus particularly because it doesn't – you never know, but it doesn't look like the NFL rights will be locked up uh, by December 10th. So, Right. <laughs> well, it's going to be a huge day, and I know you, you and I are both very Absolutely. excited. We'll be back on to talk about it soon. But Francisco, thanks for coming on again.